Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, uh, again, we have nothing to talk about, so uh, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow. No, yes. We still have a Supreme Court vacancy and a battle royale uh, in the commentariat and among the political types and everywhere about what should happen now. Uh, Noah Rothman, you have a piece going up shortly on commentarymagazine.com or probably up by the time people listen to this um, called Call Their Bluff. And you, you lay out the practical argument against the case that is being made by my dear friend Jonah Goldberg, my friend David French, uh, one of my intellectual heroes, George Will, that there should be a grand bargain to delay a vote or at a nomination on for the Supreme Court until the election is decided, uh, or uh, in exchange for what in exchange or delay a vote in exchange for the possibility that should Democrats win, that they will agree to not pack the court uh, as a response to whatever. Uh, That is the case that Jonah has made in the dispatch or that uh, David's made in Time Magazine and that George Will has made in the Washington Post. And you are having none of it. I share my esteem and admiration for all these figures. Um, I just struggle to see the ethical, much less political justification for legitimizing a hostage-taking tactic when, especially when, the hostage Democrats have taken is themselves. Okay, um, you've, got to, you've got to tease this out. So the hostage-taking so the hostage taking that you're talking about is, you better not do, is Democrats saying, you better not do this or we're going to pack the court. And you know what else we're going to do? <laughs> we may add four more senators by granting statehood, if we take over, granting statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico, thus add four more senators. Because let's face it, it's not fair. You guys get all the senators. Funny, because as last I remember, Democrats actually had um, a majority of the Senate from 2006 to 2014, which I don't know, this notion that um, Republicans now have a lock on the Senate because it's not fair, because rural states, uh, the less populous states get the same number of senators as as bigger states and they now we have a lock and republicans have a lock where was this where was this lock it was only 3 yeah. elections ago there was no lock and it's not and it may not survive this cycle right. we should also count out the number of uh, states with 3 electoral votes that have two democratic senators it's um it's a pretty large amount. Anyway, so anyway, regardless. Um so yeah, what democrats are threatening to do is a radical revision of the civic compact, the political equilibrium. And um, I don't know why that's a threat per se. It seems to me that what you are saying here is that you are going to scuttle every initiative that you campaign on, derail a Biden administration, um, deprioritize legislative reforms, invite political backlash, and serve up swing state Democrats who delivered these majorities to you in sacrifice in pursuit of a fit of peak Okay, wait. Um, they're they're now, really just frustrated by this, okay. this set of circumstances, and I understand their frustration. Now, but explain, hold on, it. hold on, hold on. Explain why they what, what your theory of the electorate that says that Democrats are in fact holding themselves hostage. They're holding their agenda hostage, and they're holding their political future hostage. No matter what happens in November, if they were if they were uh, to uh, proceed on the course of packing the court and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, there's sort of a a familiar brand of fatalism at play here, which holds that every political impasse, every moment of political conflict is prelude to this dramatic national divorce. I mean, we're privy to it literally every single time there's one of these controversies. And this is yet another example of it. And I, I, I push back on this. I've been doing it for years in the pages of this magazine that, you know, you zoom out and take a 30,000 foot view of this thing and you see an electorate that is defined primarily by apathy 
100, you know, the majority of voting age people don't even bother to exercise the franchise. So the notion that we are this hyper-politicized country just discounts literally half the country. Um, but what you do see people energized by are dramatic reforms, changes to the underlying civic compact. We do incrementalism well. When we do radicalism, voters punish you for it. And the pendulum swings rather predictably from one end to the other of the partisan spectrum. And it doesn't really do radical fringes very much. Now, the, our two parties are becoming radicalized. People are sorting themselves into homogenous groups and the parties are more responsive to their fringes. But the voters tell a rather consistent tale about this country. And what that Republicans are doing now is absolutely conventional, completely normal. The third exercise of this constitutional prerogative in four years. It is something with which we are pretty comfortable. What Democrats are threatening to do here is totally radical, a wild revision of the social compact, and one that I don't think they have the, the political capital to execute and, or the, the foresight to proceed with. I mean, I, or rather, I do think they have the foresight to not proceed with this course of action because it would be detrimental to their own political position. There's a reason why this hasn't been done in 150 years, and it's not as though we're even talking about some sort of institutional reform that is necessitated by a dysfunctional institution. It's purely punitive. Democrats are saying, we are purely interested in turning this to, into an instrument of political utility for our party. That is, that's what's on the table now. And make them earn it. Why on earth would Republicans ever legitimize such a, a, a nakedly self-advantageous pursuit of, or pursuit of political advantage, and, uh, advantage on their part when they haven't thought through any of the consequences? It is purely a tantrum. And it's one that I don't think has a lot of weight. So lacking any sort of institutional or procedural prerogative here to stop this, which they themselves sacrificed, they're now hostage to, to these conditions that they created for themselves. And they're, again, they're holding a gun to their own heads saying, dare us, dare us to do this. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So uh, the bluff that you're saying should be called is this notion that you better not do what we don't want you to do, or we will take radical actions that will uh, that we will be punished for by the electorate in 2022 and 2020. If we do them, we'll be punished. Uh, David and Jonah and George are all trying to make the case that uh, what is going on here requires a new compact of civility and trust between the political parties and the the wise heads at the head of these parties uh, in order to forestall uh, what what we say this week during during the uh, days of awe we Jews that they can avert the evil decree which is the breakup of the United States uh, supposedly um, and I got my objection is very uh, plain, which is what deal? What are you talking about? Are they going to sign a binding piece of paper uh, that will be that they don't, the Democrats agree not to vote for statehood for DC and Puerto Rico because in October of 2020, they didn't want Trump to get a vote on his Supreme Court justice. Maybe Elizabeth Warren can broker a pinky promise among all the senators on the Judiciary Committee. <laughs> I mean, it, there's there's nothing to hold these people to their word at all. Yeah. That's I mean, I, yeah. that's, that's what we've just learned. Did we not <laughs> right. just learn in the last 48 hours that when Mitch McConnell says you shouldn't do this because of this, here's why. And then four years later, he's like, well, you know what? Nah. You know, or Lindsey Graham says, "You hold me to account. I if if I say it's okay for a Supreme Court justice to be voted on in an election year, you throw those words back in my face." And he's like, "Okay, throw those words back in my face. I'd prefer her to have a Supreme Court justice than to have you, you know, than than to be have to be face down. You're throwing your words back in my face." But one so, one thing, I, I mean, one point that I think Noah's piece makes is going to make really well and to help people understand why this is a bluff is that a lot of what they're demanding is is kind of extra procedural, right? They they've blown up the the thing that in the Senate allowed for the institution to negotiate these norms, right? The filibuster, right? There were ways in which you could 
even a minority group could make sure that others had to be brought on board to any decision making, especially major decisions that was blown up by the Democrats. So now it's almost like they're wanting to change the rules of the game using using, you know, outside broker deals and whatnot. I mean, that's at least what Jonah and David and George seem to be proposing. And there's nothing wrong with deal making. That's half of how things get done in the Senate. But but the idea that this should be the new norm is completely alighting the fact that, you know, the the norm broke down for a reason. It broke down because of power politics. So now we're playing power politics and everyone's saying, this is terrible. This is just pure power politics. And so, yeah, everybody's hypocritical in playing power politics, but that's because the other norms have already broken down. And I feel like that just needs to constantly be reminded that voters need to be reminded of that constantly. This isn't a peculiar to Republicans. This is a problem. <laughs> Abe. Yeah, I, I agree overwhelmingly with everyone here. I have one concern that is actually in keeping sort of with um, Noah's characterization of large scale apathy in the country. And that is because of that very apathy, I think it is possible that um, many Americans can look on the um, distortion and the sudden distortion of norms and the and the blowing up of norms um and kind of be okay with it. So I, I do wonder if the Democrats would be holding themselves hostage, in effect, to the degree that you seem to think they would be. We've seen numbers on pretty radical things change very quickly um, in this country in the past few years. And uh, packing the court, could that be one of them in, 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 the, in the event that, uh, that Trump gets his nominee? I, I don't know entirely. I think it's a possibility. I suppose it's possible, but it requires – this is not something you do overnight. Um, this is a sort of thing that would require a whole lot of groundwork, none of which has been laid at all. I'd go back and forth with my friends over the nature of whether – or the debate over the legislative filibuster and whether there would be the political capital there to pursue that. I think there is because we've been talking about it for a decade. Um, the notion here that you can just flip a switch and, and change the dynamics of the Supreme Court for the first time in over 150 years is fantasy. It's just not how things get done in this country. You need to expend a lot of political capital at the expense of just about every progressive legislative reform you've campaigned on, and probably at the expense of a whole lot of vulnerable members who make up your majorities, in order to seek and pursue this really purely punitive without any uh, legislative or ra rather any political justification save the advancement of one political party's agenda okay. um, it it's this a, it, is it, why this is why they have this backwards if you were actually a serious political you know machiavellian power player type you would say you got to do you got this backwards you have to expand the number of states first You've got to get these two, you've got to get D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, so you've got four more Democratic senators, so that if you, you, you uh, let's say, by 2022 or 2024, if you can get that number up to 60, you don't have to blow up the legislative filibuster, you can get the states through legislation and or... You blow up the legislative filibuster, but you still have enough states, you still have enough senators to pass this in 2022 when people punish you because a bunch of senators are going to lose in 2022 because of the radicalism of this uh, expansion of the states and the, the radical agenda, but you'll still have four more senators so you'll still be Democrats will still have 51 votes. They blow up the legislative filibuster and then they pack the court. You can't pack the court first. You have to pack the court second. <laughs> so how about this? Why don't they spend a year trying to expand the number of states by two? See how Americans like literally there are, you know, I don't know how many. I mean, people when you say it, I, I voluntarily laugh. I know. But how many people <laughs> are still alive who were. In their majority, meaning 21 years old, I mean, not not, met, not that many, when Alaska and Hawaii became states, which was the last time that was 60 years ago, 61 years ago. And um, you can see how like four or five years later, Alaska and Hawaii would not have become states. It, this was like the last gasp of world 
on the one hand, World War II, we need, you know, uh, we, we, we should reward Hawaii for having been on the front line of World War II. And then the joke, of course, was that Hawaii was a Republican state, so they needed to add a Democratic state, which was Alaska. And now Alaska is a Republican state and Hawaii is a Democratic state, which is one of the reasons that you don't have to say things like, oh, my God, Republicans have a hammerlock on the Senate because of the undemocratic form of the rural urban divide. Right. Coalitions are impermanent. We know that. But you've just uh, uh, described the principle that has guided every admission to the union since the 1820s, which is the pursuit of equilibrium, a political equilibrium, um, even with a rather sordid history, but one nevertheless that has guided the expansion of the union ever since, such as an effort to expand the union by adding two new solid blue states because they would be solid blue states, really blows up the compact. And the, that's the idea. The idea well, is to blow up the compact. So this is where I think we're in a strange new kind of political moment, which has been... Um, I was thinking about it because I watched uh, AOC's long rambling video that she made about RBG because it was urged on me by some well-intentioned friends. Um, And there's a kind of performative radicalism that moderate Americans enjoy consuming as almost like entertainment, right? She, uh, AOC is the master of this, right? Or sorry, mistress, whatever you want to call her. She is just so good at it. She just comes, she's incredibly, you know, telegenic. She's charismatic. It doesn't really matter that what she's saying half the time makes no sense. It's just, it's so earnest. And, you know, she's looking right at the camera. But the ideas are radical, right? So there's a sense in which I think Americans are just now starting to wake up to the idea that performative radicalism can spin out into actual radical action. And in a way that a lot of this rhetoric of these people who are saying, we're going to pack the court, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. I think, Noah, you're right that they're bluffing to some extent, but there are people in their coalition who aren't bluffing at all and intend to see this through in the same way that you see radical you know, activists claim they're going to you know, kill all the cops and do all these other things. But now we actually have real people on the ground threatening and harassing and, you know, and well, some outbreaks of violence. Here's another point that I make in this piece. The Democrats on the left, the activists left, have been talking themselves into this position for years. They were doing it before the, the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They'll be doing it after. Republicans didn't bring them to this position. They can't appease them out of it. It's not something that they have any control over. This is self-radicalization. And there's no reason we should be roped into this, into this uh paradigm that they've worked themselves up into in order to justify it further you know radicalize on your own time okay so basically it appears (laughs) that this grand bargain uh, argument which which i think is um the kind of thing that you might have gotten in the last act of an episode of the West Wing, like the West Wing episode where where well, that's there, there are suddenly that's two <laughs> where there are suddenly two Supreme Court nominations at the same time and they decide to pick one conservative and one liberal in order to maintain the equilibrium, whatever. Um, it's not going to happen because we, as 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 we know this morning. Uh, Mitt Romney said that he was in favor of the process of a nomination and a you know going forward, basically giving uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham a green light if they can figure out how to do it procedurally to get a hearing and a vote up before the election. I'm I'm pretty sure now when I say if there's a way for them to do it. It's not just, by the way, that there are, you know, 40 days or whatever. It's also that, you know, there's an election coming up, uh, granted, so people aren't really, um, aren't really, uh, campaigning, uh, in the normal fashion, uh, as they used to. Uh, but, you know, it would be hard even for Lindsey Graham, who is in a tough reelection battle, though presumably this will help him in that battle, uh, in, in South Carolina, um, you know, that they would need to go home. And, uh, and 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 campaign. And so uh, people on the Senate Judiciary Committee need to campaign. Guess who's on the Senate Judiciary Committee? Kamala Harris is on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, so uh, they may, I mean, oddly, it may actually be a little difficult. And and I, I believe when we were talking about this yesterday, it was before Trump said he was going to wait till the weekend, right? He said he was going to wait till the weekend, and Noah said, oh, my God, he's just doing this for, you know, to because, you know, to like build up suspense or something like that. And then he said it was because he didn't want to interfere with with uh, Ginsburg's funeral. 
And I think they need the time. I think they're trying to buy themselves a little time just to make sure that whoever it is they pick, you know. He met with Barrett yesterday. He met with Barrett yesterday. He apparently is meeting with Lagoa today in some fashion or other. Um, It's possible I was a little too cynical there. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Even if it's just a pretext, the stated pretext is admirable. Right. Okay. So, so. That's it's going to be, you know, what is that going to be? It'll be September 28th or something like that before there's a nominee. It's tough. I mean, honestly, it's it's that's that's a that's a short that's a short time frame. And it is a short time frame in case something really does emerge. And then you could then a delay. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe a delay doesn't. Maybe it's only the nomination that matters. Because if, I mean, there are two things that matter. One is getting someone on the court. But of course, if they can't actually have a vote, then they can't have a vote anyway. Like if well, something happens. Today, they, though, yeah. is, is, you know, the probably the last real holdout from the Republican uh, Senate Majority Conference. Mitt Romney said that he's, he's going to vote. Didn't say one way or the other. But he's he's going to confirm to vote, and that's that's pretty much it. It's just Collins and Murkowski who are dissenting to this, and I think now you have fifty one, fifty one Republicans. Yeah. At least, uh, unlikely to have any out, out of left field dissenters. Court Gardner is on board, and the the vulnerable types aren't aren't pulling a Susan Collins here. So, I mean, the stage is set. By the way, I don't even understand these numbers because are we to understand? This is part of the thing that confuses me. Are we to understand that should Collins and Murkowski lose this fight where they say we don't want to vote before the election and there's a vote before the election that they will then vote against confirmation because the nominee comes up before the election? I mean, that's where I can't – that's again where this deal idea starts getting me my my head turned around because – is it the case that let's say there's the world's greatest nominee in the history of nominees comes before the Senate? Are you because you would prefer that this happened on November 5th or November 6th rather than November 2nd? Or you think it would be better if it happened under a Democrat, but you're a Republican and you want there to be a conservative on the court that you would say you would vote no? solely on procedural grounds i mean that's the whole thing about the way the senate generally works which is that cloture refusing to vote for cloture which is the closing of debate that then allows there to be a vote you can vote against cloture and for final passage it's the famous John Kerry, I voted against the 87 billion before I voted for it or whatever the hell it was he said um, because you get to you get two bites at the apple, but that's not the case with the suspension of the legislative filibuster. So there's more in the those who really start to expand on the deal. They're like, okay, well then maybe we can have a lame duck confirmation, which is insane. Is never going to happen. That's that's a real asterisk after a justice's name um, because Americans will have registered their dissatisfaction with the the incumbent president and the party in power, and then they would be executing a power that really had had been attenuated, if not constitutionally, than, than by a claim. Um, but what is the principle at stake here? We talk about this as though it's an exercise of raw power, and it has to be tempered by principle. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Sure. But what is the principle? Nobody's nobody's elaborated on what this principle is. This first principle that we should be uh, uh, advancing and advocating and, and exemplifying ourselves, what is it? Deference, deference to people who feel themselves to be shut out of a process, a process they were shut out of by a vote. I don't know. I, don't I mean, know I, I honestly don't know. It and just it seems like they're just very discomfited by the fact that they have this responsibility now, and it's making people very frustrated. No, and no. That I, first of all, that hang on, that frustration is manifesting in some very intimidating ways, and everybody wants to take the temperature down. But there's no indication that just abdicating your authority here will do that. Yeah, but that well, is but that is the principle is to, is to is to pull back from brinksmanship is to, is to, is to not not blow things up, right? And and by the way, remember, I don't know who's arguing this. I mean, Collins and Murkowski said we would you know, all things we, we want there to be a vote after the election. We're dealing with an argument that is being made by 
people like us, right? By Jonah and David and and, and George Will. And uh, they are not people who are voting. They're saying it would be better for the country if there could be a different process here. And you know what? Maybe it would be better for the country if there could be a different process here. But there can't be a different process here because that's a species of a different time. This is not the time that we live in. We do not live in a time in which uh, there is a Democrat, there is a Senate in 1986 that votes unanimously to confirm Antonin Scalia. You know why Antonin Scalia was voted without a single negative vote? Because it, the presumption before Bork, um, pretty much before Bork, though there were, was that if a justice was competent was was deemed universally deemed competent thoughtful or whatever intellectually capable of doing the job the president had the right to nominate and the and the supreme court would confirm that switch that changed when it was decided that a that a nominee's views sometimes misrepresented like Howell Heflin of Alabama saying that he voted against Bob Bork because he learned that Bob Bork had been a socialist in college. It's literally, that's a real thing. I didn't make that up. Um, So suddenly the views were bad and now it's 30 some odd years later and you're allowed to vote against somebody who is the greatest person ever for any reason. That's another reason not to even countenance a deal, by the way, because, you know, yesterday we were talking about um, who was a controversial pick and who's not a controversial pick in our in our history. There will never be or not never. But for, for the foreseeable future, every conservative justice, every conservative nominee will be a massive all hands on deck emergency for the Democrats and the and the temptation for some sort of deal, therefore, is always going to be there. It's not just about an election year. It's not they are this. The, the threats will always come following hard on the heels of a conservative nominee. Well, and that's where I think, you know, to the question, the rhetorical question we're asking, which is what what's the principle that the Constitution doesn't allow for any sort of extraneous principle. It sets the procedure and then it gives the Senate huge discretion in determining it. So it strikes me that, you know, Jonah and David and whatnot are very upset and don't trust the discretion of Mitch McConnell and the Senate. And that's fine. They don't have to trust the discretion. But the Constitution then gives the people a way to solve that problem, too. It's called an election. So I just feel like if if people on our own side are are, are worried about the judgment and the discretion of, of the Republican leadership, that's fine. But saying that we should reject the constitutional norms that are in place is not the answer to that. And to the point about any nominee, we're already seeing that with Amy Coney Barrett. Newsweek printed a story this week claiming that she belongs to a religious group that was the basis for Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Then they had to issue a correction, which basically they should have taken the whole piece down. It was all made up. It was just false. But it's an effort to smear a woman of faith um, because her name is in the mix for the nomination. But I mean, what they're, thre- again, just to reiterate, what they're threatening here is wildly implausible. It's like saying, don't do this, or I'm going to go develop a six-pack. Well, it would take me a lot of effort to do that, and God bless me if I manage to achieve it. <laughs> but it's not a credible threat. <laughs> Noah! <laughs> All right, Noah. we get to see Noah's six-pack on election day. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> Noah, why are, why, are you, why are you disrespecting yourself in this fashion? How is, this is just me being a realist, okay. which I advise the Senate Republican Conference to be as well. Well, uh, all 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 evidence appears that the Senate Republican Congress is 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 uh, is uh, is in a realistic uh, frame of mind here. And again, I, I want to repeat: jo- Jonah Goldberg is a very dear friend of mine. I am I am a wash in admiration for George Will, and I really really like David French. All of these things together. This is a hearty disagreement uh, and a respectful one because that can still happen. Uh, not that you would know that it could still happen, but it can it can still happen. Um, yesterday, now to switch gears, yesterday um, we were on our group chat. Yes, you can drink because mm-hmm. every now and we, we say this because we did this, people sent in this uh, bingo board where they had like, things that we say that 
you know, should cause that should lead to a drinking game. And one of them is when we refer to our, our, our group chat. So the other, others are using the word solipsistic. Uh, and, uh, there are a couple of others anyway. So on our group chat, uh, Abe and I, Christine, something came up and Abe and I simultaneously in response to something Christine said, said, there's no normal anymore. And so I thought this was, it was interesting because we were both reflecting on the same thing that and what we meant was that since COVID, since uh, February, there is no normal. There's no normal American life. There's no conventional, let's just get back to, you know, the voters just want to get back to normal or we're going to get back to normal or people don't really pay that much attention to politics because, you know, they're normal and they have other things going on in their lives, which I'm not saying they don't. But um, everything now uh, in this country is overshadowed by the pandemic and the reaction to the pandemic. And I, I don't really know what that means, but it means something very, it means that we are living at the, in the weirdest time period of our lives, the weirdest, not the most tragic, even though it's a terrible, COVID's a terrible tragedy, not the most horrific, even though COVID is horrific, it, but it is weird. And so, trying to understand how people are reacting to things is very difficult because people are reacting in all kinds of different ways. Um, Abe, do you want to reflect on what yeah, it was that it was, brought you to? It, well, I, Chris, Christine was talking about um, the declared state of emergency in advance yes. of the, um, of yeah, in Louisville, of the uh, Breonna Taylor um, uh, decision. And so it strikes me that, you know, we've been sort of just um, buffeted by these successive emergencies now, you, you know, weekly, daily, e- e- either official emergencies or just the sense of crisis. And it is definitely a direct result or a direct and indirect result of the distortion of the national reality that has now stretched so much longer than we had anticipated um, from February um, to late September, and it's going to continue. Um, and when nothing looks or feels or functions like it normally does, um, it is impossible, it becomes impossible to compare what's abnormal with what is normal and functioning because nothing is actually functioning. So anything goes. It's like, you know, conspiracy theorists, and I'm not one, never have been one, always would talk about false flag operations uh, on, on the part of the government, you know, that uh, that the, the, if the U.S. would plan 9-11, you see, they would, they would do things to be able to create a state of emergency to impose uh, martial law or some other extreme policies on the public. Um, that's kind of what's happened here, not as, not as a result of a government conspiracy, but just as um, an organic... Um, process um, brought on by the pandemic and the lockdowns. We are in this state of affairs where because the entire country has been subject to this gross emergency reality, um, nothing, it is a very precarious position to be in because anything goes. Can I tell you a quick story? In March, a very dear friend of mine was planning uh, her daughter's bat mitzvah, and which was going to take place at the end of March. Um, and in February, I think end of March or sometime in April, I can't remember. And she started saying, I, am I going to have to cancel? So the first I said was, no, come on, you're not going to have to cancel. What? Don't be ridiculous. Of course, you're not going to have to cancel. I mean, and if you do, you'll get your money back and whatever. So then she had to cancel. Did not get her money back because, of course, the caterer, you know, like whatever, whoever she had done X, Y, and Z for didn't have the money because their entire business collapsed, right? So then she said, okay, I'm scheduling the party for like Halloween. We have the party in Halloween and it's going to be the biggest, blow- fantastic, it's going to be fantastic, big, bar- big blowout. And then in June, she said... Where she said, well, do you think I can schedule it for Halloween? And then I said, you know what? 
if you can't schedule this party for Halloween, everything is over anyway. Like the country is finished. It's that's it. So of course she's not going to have the party on Halloween, which is in five weeks. The country's not finished because uh, it turned out that we, the great wonderment of this period is how easily we all sank into the COVID life. And that was unanticipatable. And I know because I not only didn't I anticipate it, but I figured, you know, it would be like, now the funny thing is what I would have said was there'll be riots in the streets. There'll be the cities will be burning down all of that. And that all (laughs) happened, but not in relation to COVID unless you actually think, as I think Noah believes that much of this is in relation to COVID, that under other circumstances, George Floyd and the summer and what's going on in Portland and all that could not have happened without having a a population rendered, uh, uh, you know, impotent without anything to do, without any place to go, without any diversion, without employment, without all kinds of things. And so therefore, they were, it was just ready kindling for the fire. You're missing the key ingredient. Yeah. It was political officials, elected officials, and public health officials saying explicitly that this is your one socially acceptable outlet of um, social interaction. And that's precisely what these protests manifest. If you see, if you watch television, you'll see solemn marching and, and uh, you know, uh, screaming protests and even maybe some looting and rioting at night. But what you will never see are the pictures that we see on social media of dancing, of celebrating, of drinking, of having a real good time. Because it was the only thing you could do. Right. So there's no normal. So we have this uh, surprise event, right? At the, on, you know, f- five, six weeks before the election. Sad, the death of, uh, you know, great American Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, there's no normal. So in the world of no normal, having people go on social media, which itself is a new normal, saying we should blow the country up or this is it. If, if, if Mitch McConnell has a vote on a Supreme Court justice that is passed by a simple majority, uh, if this happens, then America's finished and therefore the system should be destroyed or whatever. Totally conventional people. I'm not talking about, you know, Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn or, you know, Angela Davis. I'm talking about like the comedian Michael Ian Black or, you know, Don Lemon of CNN. I mean, that's where the fact that there's no normal is starting to come in, which is that totally conventional people are going publicly crazy. And they're going publicly crazy because we are all being driven crazy by the by the life that we are living. Okay, but this actually speaks to something you had brought up just before we started recording, John, and that's that what does that mean for a, a political party and a presidential campaign that is promising a return to normal? If we've abandoned normal, and that's what Biden's <laughs> campaign is, and I do think this is why there's a lot of anxiety that occasionally surfaces on the left about, like, why is he put another lid on for his press today? Why is everything so stilted? Why isn't he out more? Why The questions that keep coming for his campaign are an expression of that anxiety about a message about normal, because most people don't feel like we ever will return to anything like what it was before. And getting our heads around that also means questioning the message that Biden is selling, right? Which is, at first it was, I'm not Trump. Now it's, let's return to normal because I'm not Trump. But if nothing is normal, then I don't find his message quite as persuasive, especially since he himself is not out there making it consistently and as often as he probably should be, even under these pandemic circumstances. Well, okay, so that that's an interesting point. Although the hope for normal, right? All Trump has done during COVID is say things are normal, or you know, if they're they're abnormal, or it's not my fault. <laughs> Or, no, or they're abnormal, but we're going to get them back to normal as soon as possible using whatever means we have at our disposal. And then it turns out that's not possible, right? So he went and said yesterday, and it may have been out of context because I only really know the quote, that almost nobody gets this thing. 
Now, that's true if you want to talk about 6 billion people on Earth or 330 million Americans. But 200,000 people as of today have died of COVID. And this is a disease that did not exist before December of 2019. And yes, some of those 200,000 people would presumably have died during the course of this year anyway. But saying that nobody is getting it is not an answer to the question of why it is that we should somehow get back to work or ignore it or, 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 or like, you know, or uh, kind of um, take the risk, take risks to go back to living a normal life because not to do so is intolerable. Uh, it, it is the refusal to acknowledge that it is necessary to assume a certain degree of risk to get back to normal that makes Trump's arguments or whatever it is you might call them, uh, I wouldn't say irresponsible. I would just say that they, 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 they have a fantastical science fictional element in some fashion because uh, no one's going to – people the people who can't go back to normal can't go back to normal. Nobody over 75 can go back to normal. Uh, I mean, maybe if they live in, you know, Alaska or, you know, they live in a tent in Alaska and they're 80, they can go back to normal. But, you know, my parents can't go back to normal. My parents can't go outside. A lot of people can't go outside and they still can't go outside until somehow there is some kind of all clear that is blown by people who aren't politicians. Um. And so there's no answer. So what when Biden, if Biden is saying we can go back to normal and I'm not Trump, it's more powerful than you're giving a credit for being because he's not helping. I mean, some of that actually makes it worse, makes it more depressing, makes it, you know, doesn't even give your even grant people the sense that they are in their lives are being inconvenienced for a good reason, like that their lives are being inconvenienced and they're saving lives. We're, we're living this way to save lives, not our, not just our lives are, but other people's lives. And this is a, this is a noble, we are suffering through this for a noble common purpose. But that's, he so, cannot make that argument. You mean, you mean Biden can't Trump, make, Trump, oh, Trump can't make Trump that cannot, argument. But, but there's a way in which Biden's attempt to make it is starting to, to at least maybe perhaps it's just me. It's rubbing me the wrong way. The ostentatious wearing of a mask while giving an interview where there's no need to wear a mask. I mean, there's a, there's a fair amount of COVID theater that's being performed by the Biden campaign that people who are frustrated with the fact that, you know, they look at, they, they, they read a newspaper and they see that school people have returned to school in countries like Germany. There are other uh, places that are trying ways to get people back to some normalcy. And all we see in terms of practical effect for the Biden campaign is make sure you wear those masks, except if you're protesting. And then it's, then we're just going to pretend that's not happening. I just feel like, I don't know, maybe that's fine. They're just going to ride that horse all the way to November, but it's starting to strike me as being almost a pantomime of, of a policy rather than a policy itself. Yeah. Nothing he said about what he would do is remotely inspired at all. Um, um, it's, it's, you know, it always circles back to an attack on um, Trump's uh, early um, uh, sort of um, descent on masks. Um, that's it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, he, he drives you crazy. I mean, we talked about this before. His supporters see it as actually a positive that he drives you crazy Who? in part because Trump, Trump, yeah. right because he's so inconsistent. And deliberately inconsistent. He says whatever he thinks his audience wants to hear at the moment they want to hear it. And that it requires a conscious effort to let this to 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 avoid this president driving you crazy. Many have succumbed to the temptation and it's exhausting. It's just exhausting to have to constantly ground yourself. I mean, he drives us. He drives them crazy. I I was amused by a piece last week by James Fallows in The Atlantic. And here's what James Fallows said. He said, the media are misplaying this election. They're going to make the same mistake in 2020 that they made in 2016. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. This is going to be an interesting counterintuitive argument that's being made that they're missing something like he's probably doing better among 
white non-voters than people realize. So they better do something to Biden better shore up this or do that or do anything. That's not what Fallis said. What he said was Trump lies a lot. <laughs> and so the media have to say that he's lying all the time. And they're not saying it enough. They need to say it more. They need to say it 17 times a day, every sentence. And they shouldn't report on what he says, except they should say that he's lying. But then they don't have to quote it because he's lying. So they only say Trump spoke lies. And that will somehow magically lose him the election. Because if they don't do that, because I don't know if you know this, but in 2016, in the run-up to the election, the press didn't say that Trump lied. Ever. They never said he lied. That never happened. Never. So when I see that, I think, James Fallows is an intelligent person. I mean, I know he's an intelligent person because he wrote a rave review of my first book, Hell of a Ride. So therefore, obviously, he's an extremely intelligent person. But he's an intelligent person. He read. Who's going to be convinced in October? It's like, oh, my God, Trump lies. I better not vote for him. Who is that intended? Whose opinion is going to shift on that basis? Well, it's not that people are it's not that it's going to shift. And we've talked about this before. If his mouth was going to do him in, it would have done him in, meaning the election is already over. Right. In that sense. And we have a lot of data to indicate that's true. Right. We should talk about some of that data because it's interesting. Everybody I know thinks, I mean, everybody I know who, who likes Trump thinks that the polls are wrong. Um, and they, they might be wrong. If they're wrong, it means that the, elect, that the electorate is being wildly mismodeled. And it's being wildly mismodeled not only at the national level, but at the state level. Because here's the polling... The state-level polling, which theoretically is more, you know, like granular at the level of a, you know, uh, uh, the makeup of a state. So uh, Iowa, a state that is, I think, 96% white, I believe, and that Trump won by nine in 2016. So even if you boost white, non, you know, white working class, non-college numbers that, you know, you do all this stuff with your with your polling and your A-plus level Des Moines Register Seltzer poll, the race is tied in Iowa. If you have a really good poll in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, shows the race tied in Georgia, which he also won by nine. Now, I don't think that Biden is going to win Iowa and Georgia. I mean, I'm sort of, I, 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 in fact, there's part of me that says that this is turning into an exercise like the GOP always used to go through in presidential years in New Jersey until about 2008, where there would be polls in October, September in New Jersey that would show the race like within a point or two presidentially. And then this idea was, let's throw enormous amounts of money in New Jersey because, you know, if Republicans won New Jersey, then they just win going away. Like you don't even have to win X if you win New Jersey. And then the election would approach and the polls would separate and the Democrats would win by four or five or six or something like that. I mean, I sort of anticipate something like that happening in Iowa and Georgia, but maybe not, you know? And so, you know, this all tracks with a national Biden lead of around six or seven, which is what the polls say. And that therefore in some of these states that Trump shouldn't even have to spend a nickel in, he's going to have to defend or fight for. That's really bad. Like that's bad for him. Uh, so that may be the evidence that he's lost already in, in in this in this way. But having the press spend six weeks saying Trump lies more like it's not like they don't say Trump lies. They say Trump lies every five minutes. So it needs to be every thirty seconds. I don't understand. That's where I say they've driven him. That he's driven them crazy because there is this kind of weird impotent rage that says. There's got to be something that comes out of our mouths where we can take people, shake them by the lapels, and make them see reason. And and it's not happening, and that means we need to shake them more. You know, it's like the the baby's the baby's still crying. Let's shake the baby until the baby is dead. I mean, I don't really understand. Well, that, no, but that's not a bad way to put it because they have they've been driven so crazy that they're practically anti-vaxxers now. 
You know, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> if uh, but that, too, is Trump's fault. For a variety of very convoluted. Oh, well, right, exactly. Can't possibly be Democrats' fault. Right, right, right. No, exactly. Right, no, oh, no. So that drove them to this position. I mean, Kamala Harris says, you know, I I would take a vaccine, but not on Trump's word. As this if, is exactly as if that's the way it would work. <laughs> this is what the I'm president saying. alone would come out and say, <laughs> I, I I cooked up a vaccine. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna send it out in a bunch of trucks. Don't listen to anyone else, and you're gonna get it. This is not saying what happened to trust the science, but this is what I'm saying. The president actively tries to drive you crazy. And I, I think he's very effective at that. But you being crazy is on you. No one made you crazy. You had to make the conscious decision to allow yourself to be driven crazy. And a lot oh, of people respond to that incentive. But there's also some, I mean, but then there's also going to be, if, if the, even if the election is, as you say, John, already decided Trump's going to lose, Biden's going to win, it's still going to be heavily contested. We had this news, what, yesterday about these courts deciding that they're going to accept, um, ballots, mail-in ballots, you know, past the date. And I mean, we're not even really going to know. And the battle that happens from the moment that election day polls close, and we have an actual president that will be accepted as the elected leader might be weeks, months, who knows? So there, be, or, I mean, but that discounts. Unless the, it's the a landslide. Right. Right. And it, I mean, it could be, it could be, it looks but like you know, that is that, but yeah. that is, that is also, by the way, that is another one of these totally total distortions that would not be happening. Uh, were the country not somewhat broken by this pandemic, I mean, the, the idea that there are all these articles preparing the country for this months long um, siege. Yeah, this months long. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, you know, maybe we, we, we usually get through elections and know the results before months. Well, OK, so so that's another example of how every everything is crazy and that, yeah, there's no new normal, which is. uh you can't go to the polling place. You can't go because you'll get sick. Right? Okay. So we need to have a modality so that people can do mail-in voting. Uh, Trump doesn't like mail-in voting. He's This is foolishness. This is narishkeit on his part. Totally. Because uh, he needs people over 70 to vote for him. People over 70 are the least likely to go to a polling place during, during a pandemic uh, that kills old people. And so uh, he then had to say, no, it's okay to vote by mail in Florida, uh, just not elsewhere. So this was, this is, you know, idiotic Narishkeit based on stupid Republican talking points for years that mail in voting and absentee balloting favor Democrats, which, by the way, absentee balloting does not favor Democrats. I don't know where this came from. This is a delusion. Absentee balloting, when in 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 my in my day, when I really followed this stuff, you know, gradually was largely was more Republican than Democratic, because it was often more affluent people who engaged in it, and you know, businessmen who were abroad or whatever. So, and so that that was that was a big thing. So he says he doesn't like mail-in voting. So everyone's like, oh, my God, mail-in voting. It's the most important thing on earth. And he's screwing up the postal service. And everything is terrible. And everything is crazy. And then two things occur to people in the Democratic coalition after all of this screaming and yelling and the fact that they're all COVID fundamentalists and all that, which is uh, ballots done by mail uh, and absentee or just done by mail are much dirtier than ballots cast, uh, you know, at the polls. Um, They have a rejection rate sometimes four or five times higher than ballots not at the poll, right? So um, they've now ginned up their own people to vote by mail. And now they're getting terrified that their people are going to vote by mail and screw up the ballot. So I I keep reading this. They have to understand you can't sign the ballot. You don't sign the ballot. You're not supposed to sign a ballot. You have to sign the envelope, not the ballot. People need to know this. And now it's like, go vote in person. You have to go vote in person. That's what I mean by them driving themselves crazy. It's like Pavlov's response. Trump doesn't like mail-in voting, so they like mail-in voting. Trump 
In fact, mail-in voting hurts Trump's base more than it hurts them. They should be encouraging in-person voting. And it only occurred to them about five seconds ago that they needed to encourage in-person voting. So I feel like that this has less to do with Trump and more of the pieties of the pandemic, right? I mean, we had this. Yes, but but the pieties of this pandemic are totally related to Trump. Well, they are to an extent. No, uh, let me let me give you let me give you an example because in Israel, I think I've mentioned this before. In Israel, Bibi Netanyahu is the COVID fundamentalist, and everybody else, the liberals, want the country to reopen. Why? Because they hate Bibi, so they so they're they're anti lockdown, and here Trump is anti lockdown. So all the liberals are pro lockdown. That's how it works. That's that's why I say. You cannot COVID fundamentalism on the left and among liberals is entirely related to how you feel about Trump. I suppose it's part of it, but it requires a real selective um, in, intake of information. We had this Wisconsin primary race that was uh, in April that was the subject of real controversy. The governor wanted it to go forward, and then 24 hours before it was supposed to happen, he didn't want it to go forward, and the Supreme Court of the state had to intervene, and the Supreme Court of the country had to intervene. And eventually they held this election and it was kind of ridiculous where everybody was 12 feet apart from each other and the lines were uh, you know, several miles long and it went on until midnight or something like that. It was kind of crazy, but it went off um, to without the one most important hitch, which was a COVID spike. There was no COVID spike associated with that election. And this was in April. You could have internalized that information and crafted policy around that if you wanted to. But I suppose that dovetails with what you're saying, which is they didn't want to because that would essentially place them on the same side of the ledger as Trump. Well, I don't know why they didn't want to or did want to. I'm just saying that that the, we are we are operating in an atmosphere in which liberal conventional opinion is pitched. This is part of the non-new normal. I mean, is pitched at a at a at a level a, a level of hysteria that is choking the lifeblood out of them. I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, there was some of this during Obama with, with Republicans. I mean, some of the ideas, you know, it's like Glenn Beck talking about how Van Jones was going to impose a communist regime on America, that kind of thing. Like where, you know, it's like, I I sort of believe that he believed that and like he needed, you know, I mean, I really didn't like Obama and Obama was way too left wing for me, but you know, there, there are gradations and gradations here. Um, and, but I mean, they are crazy. They are, they have all gone crazy. Trump has driven them crazy and they, if Biden wins, it will be despite their craziness. Because they're the ones who are saying, this is why I think, Christine, when you mentioned like the liberal panic about how he's not doing enough, and says that like, they should have a little more faith in him maybe. You know, he like basically led in this race, you know, there was two weeks where he was in trouble from April until now, two weeks that he wasn't either 10 points up on the on on his fellow Democrats or 20 points up on his fellow Democrats and somewhere between five and nine points up on Trump since April of 2019. Maybe they know what they're doing. Whereas these loudmouths who want you to do nothing but say that Trump lies may not have the foggiest clue how to win this election. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, that's why I, I also don't even know that it matters. That's why I say I'm sort of in the camp that the election's probably already been decided although not at the senate level because this is where let, let's conclude on this let's say that trump picks amy coney barrett democrats have a real choice and there are no Demo- this is not a collective democratic choice because there are a lot of different competing forces here there are people who are facing election there are liberal interest groups there's biden there's all okay he picks amy coney barrett seven children very Catholic, you know, has said that, uh, you know, the true purpose of all people should be to sort of, you know, serve the kingdom of God. Totally conventional religious opinion that apparently idiot secularists don't understand as a conventional, you know, religious opinion. There she is. She's chosen. Does, Does Biden say she's too, I mean, they'll all say she's too extreme and she should be, she shouldn't be chosen. 
do they go after her personally? Because this is where I see cross currents. She's 47 years old. She's a woman. She has seven children. She's adopted two. One is developmentally disabled. Are you? Re- are they really going to try to demonize her savagely? How is that Palin, okay? Why wouldn't they but do in it a different, way? but in a different way. How, different how do they do it? Kavanaugh, sort oh, of a but, conventional way. Well, are they going to say that Palin didn't that 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 uh, the Trig wasn't wasn't Amy Coney Barrett's child? I mean. No. No, they're going to call her attack her on the religious stuff. They're going to say she's a religious fundamentalist who wants to usher in, you know, the Handmaid's Tale. That that's right. the narrative that's been said. It was set. It, it, right. There were hints of it when she was on the shortlist for Ke- the right. Kavanaugh got. Okay, so what are the yeah. political? Okay, are there? This is what I wanted to ask. Then are there political consequences for them going nuclear on? No, they Amy think Coney Barrett because they think they think that that seat belongs to a liberal woman no. and. I'm asking it realistically with the Senate in play and, you know, Biden and everything, are they, will they be foolish in trying to go at her, you know, with, you know, with a two. Yes. In this sense, it will stir up conservatives who were otherwise disengaged with this. If they see that kind of hideous, hideous performance, I think it, it will radicalize them and bring them out. I don't think so. That didn't happen in 2018. You know who was radicalized in 2018? I mean, we yep. were. You know who was radicalized? The wine moms. The Democratic wine moms no, turned but, out in droves. Yeah, but they thought Brett Kavanaugh was a rapist on the court. Yeah, no, but but supposedly uh, uh, Donnelly lost in Indiana because of uh, because of Kavanaugh. Wait, what? What? I'm there were. Donnelly, it was 2008. Hold on. No, no. Heidi Heidi Heidkamp lost in the, supposedly the generation of in 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 states where there was a close knit election helped the Republican Senate candidates in a couple of states supposedly didn't help the the house the house stuff but supposedly helped I don't ask me I don't know I that's what I read yesterday now I can't now I'm spew, spitting back things that I can't remember however I don't think the issue is Wine, is wine moms or you know conservatives who are not going to drag themselves over glass or whatever to vote for Trump? I think it's she's a nice, pleasant person with seven children, and yes, urban ladies don't like that she has seven children because it's she's anti-abortion, but. A lot of people don't really wouldn't look at someone and say she has seven children, therefore she's bad. <laughs> Particularly if she adopted a couple of them. And so I, I don't know. I'm just saying I, I, I just wonder whether it's gonna look like they're mean and nasty and horrible, and they need something other than her person, right? I mean, that was the whole thing about Kavanaugh. Like, how are they gonna demonize Kavanaugh? He was a drunken frat boy who raped a girl when she was fifteen. Except, of course, he didn't do it, and he wasn't, a, you know, and and no one, and he likes beer. He likes beer, and he didn't rape anybody, and he got on the court. I don't know, but you know, for for a while, it was touch and go. So, what is it? What do you say about Barrett that doesn't have the possibility of causing a blowback? That's what I'm asking, because I think there's a possibility of a blowback. Mm-hmm. I don't really know, but I don't think the blowback is that it makes conservatives more likely to vote. There's a very high turnout expectation for this election on both sides. I don't think you can really generate more voter turnout from conservatives than you're going to get. I don't think like never Trumpers are going to turn into Trumpers because of Amy Coney Barrett. One of my assumptions here is that this is the sort of thing that really only energizes really engaged partisans whose votes are 100% solid at this point. It's a presidential year. It's not a midterm year. It's There's really one issue on the ballot, and that is an up or down referendum on the president. And <clears throat> to the extent that we, you know, ticket splitting is even a thing anymore, it's sort of less a thing. So I, I, I just don't, I don't think this, the Supreme Court alters 
the balance of this or the, you know, the stakes of this election, the terms on which it will be determined at all, really. I don't know. I think regarding the never Trumper thing, I mean, there are gradations here. Never Trumpers are a very small specific group. And I'm not, I'm not talking about there. We're we're just over a handful or so. I mean, you know, I don't mean them. But there are certainly conservatives, lifelong conservatives or longtime conservatives who never could, would accept some, someone like Trump, but who nonetheless recognize the monumental importance of, of uh, having a conservative justice. Um, and I think for them, th- this is something new. This, this is at least a moment to, of, of, to, to pause. Okay, so is the question then just the nomination itself may cause them to say, "Oh, look, he's earned my vote." We got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and uh, and Barrett. Let's say he said he was going to be good. He was good on judges. That's important to me. I'm voting for him because God knows what Biden will do. And th- this is this is a good reminder. In which case, it doesn't really matter what they do or say to Barrett, right? It's just that that's what will be. You know that that's the line that will be profitable. Well, I think it's more if there's no vote before the election, because then then they have a reason right. to go and vote to 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 get him in to to then uh, uh, to make the vote on Barrett happen. If indeed it's Barrett, but those are the, at the you just identified it. The stakes are so much lower for conservatives on the right than they are for Democrats. I mean, even the polls suggest that Democrats are more energized by this fight than Republicans because Republicans have an ideological majority in the court. Well, it would make sense. The stakes are just not that high. Well, that's, of course, the ultimate joke about this is that this isn't the hinge election. This isn't the hinge nomination. This is just makes it 6-3 rather than 5-4. But, and as we've seen, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, like, a, that's like a cushion right. that, gives, that gives, oddly enough. John Roberts insurance. No, it's actually the opposite. That's the funny part. Because as long as Roberts doesn't have to be the deciding vote. He can vote however he wants to. See what I'm saying? Like Roberts, the institutional obligation that Roberts seemed to feel to represent some kind of balance, if he can't provide the balance, he can just vote according to his ideological dictates. There could be way more 6-3 votes that are conservative with a conservative justice than there were. It's not going to be like Roberts is going to become a liberal and then it's going to be Five four without Roberts, you know, with Roberts on the left. Roberts only crosses the aisle to vote with the left for complex. Would appear to avoid, to avoid making political decisions from the bench that should be determined in Congress. Right, the chief or just can't make Congress do its job. Right, or because he wants somebody's vote for something else, and so he's a horse trader. But you know, his vote isn't going to matter. <laughs> If if Trump gets this nomination through, so even there, like uh, the whole, you know, John Roberts is suddenly not going to be so controversial among conservatives. This is my guess. Anyway, not that that matters. That's just an interesting footnote or interesting to me and maybe incredibly boring to you. And we probably should end now before we're really boring to you. So we'll reconvene tomorrow for Noah, Christine and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>